This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. This is the second part in a series. Go back and listen to the first part for a little bit of context. Women were finding their voices. The temperance movement, driven by women and men, was taking off. Because in the 1800s, we were a drunken mess. People drank so much alcohol, three times what we drink today. It seems obvious that change was eventually going to come. From the battle arose a few shining stars, two women from the same organization whose approaches could not have been more different. One answered adversity with calm marches, diplomacy, and speeches. The other responded to adversity with a hatchet. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Sterren. This is Truce. We tend to think of teetotalers as stodgy and uptight, but they may not have been. They were the progressives of their day, advocating for a better society. Here's Jim Varel, a staff writer at Paste Magazine. Progressives were on the side of the National Prohibition Amendment because they felt that alcohol and liquor were something of a like a, a scourge of the working man, of the working class, that, that the working class would never be able to rise above their station if they were spending all their money at the saloon and that it was predatory and taking advantage of them, which to an extent it was. Some Americans saw alcohol as the thing that held people back from contributing to society. Organizations that campaigned for temperance were soon tied in to women's suffrage. Because they argued that if women were given the vote, if women achieved the vote, that they would be the key instrumental voting demographic that would usher in prohibition. But for a while, the two issues were almost inseparable. So if you owned a distillery or a brewery, you might not be so keen on the idea of women having the right to vote. There was a whole industry in jeopardy. Factories, delivery mechanisms, farmers, jobs. In this country, it seems like we're always dragging jobs and farmers into every fight. The alcohol industry wasn't about to let this thing happen, so they did some pretty shady stuff. In particular, there's there's the case of Phoebe Cousins, who was a, a famous suffragette in the late 1800s, but she kind of fell on financial hard times, and the, uh, the Brewers Association of the day paid her off to literally switch sides on the topic of, of suffrage. Like, she got money straight from uh, from Adolphus Bush of, of the Anheuser-Busch brewery and everything. And uh, it, it was just incredibly underhanded. It paid her to suddenly, after decades of, of arguing in favor of, of prohibition and women's suffrage, to suddenly veer into 
the opposite direction and say that her gender did not deserve the vote. They paid an impoverished woman to turn against her own interests. <laughs> and, and she was asked why. And I, I think the quote here says, observations made during my struggle to get the privilege of the ballot for my sex convinced me I was wrong. And, and so they would pay for her to go out on speaking tours, you know, and just saying like, I, I was wrong, we don't deserve the vote. They also released syndicated newspaper columns that were printed all across the country. Columns that were supposed to be coming from the perspective of rural farmers, very much like the demographic they were trying to reach, but they weren't being ridden by any real farmers. They were being ridden by the, the Brewers Association and they had ridiculous arguments like, quote, God pity our country when the handshake of the politician is more gratifying to woman's heart than the patter of children's feet. There's one where they said they should be happy enough that they get to raise future rulers. Why should they need to uh, feel the need to vote on uh, representatives when the next generation of representatives uh, are their children, their male children specifically? These assaults in the media were intended to stop women from getting the vote in hopes that it would also take down the temperance movement. In this case, big alcohol was literally trying to oppress women. Think about that next time you go to ladies' night. Not only did women have little recourse if their husbands or fathers beat them or lost the farm to alcohol addiction, big alcohol was also against them. The women's movement had powerful opposition, but that doesn't mean that they didn't have power all their own. Like the second president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, Francis Willard. She helped to start an all-women's college, the first female leader of a college who could grant diplomas. Then she was the first dean of women at Northwestern College. After that, she became the head of the WCTU in Chicago. Speaking of the WCTU, here again is Sarah Ward, the national president of that organization. She gets all the credit for all these things she, she did, but really, her gift was... She listened to anybody that came with an idea, and women women weren't drinking, so it wasn't a, any big problem to become a member of the WCTU, but then they all had their pet peeves and grievances that they would like to have something done about it, and they would appeal to, to Francis, and she'd say, oh, yes, that's a great idea. You go ahead, set that up, and get it going. Which is how the WCTU went from focusing on temperance to so much more with over 40 departments. There was one called Mercy, which uh, out of it came the Humane Society. They were trying to make things better for animals, and they even went so far as told women to stop buying hats that had feathers. She had this saying, do everything. Yes, it was do everything, and so the women came and they were doing everything. This is contrary to everything modern marketing gurus will tell you. They might be tempted to take it one issue at a time but not Frances Willard. Uh, so she and then this secretary, Anna Gordon, traveled, you know, by stage and train and so on all over the United States. Visiting every city they could to talk about temperance. And of course she had a little more difficulty in the South because uh, they still didn't think women should be out doing and speaking. They were just stay home and be ladies. But she had a, a wonderful gift of speaking, and so she began to even break down barriers and got into the, the southern states. Building momentum everywhere they went. And then they went out west, 
and they visited an opium den in San Francisco. And she said, oh, she had this quite a long speech, and that speech is actually on her statue in Statuary Hall. But the one phrase that we pull out a lot is, we are one world of tempted humanity. One world of tempted humanity, which I kind of like. It takes it from being just those evil people out there to all of us are tempted. So she sent women out across the whole world. About 1782, 83, she had a woman, uh, Levitt, uh, who was invited out to the Sandwich Islands, which of course became known as Hawaii, uh, to give some lectures and there was some temperance work there. The movement had already spread to Canada as well. And then England started very soon after that and this lady, Henry Somerset and Francis were the best of friends. It was going so well that she decided why not keep expanding? Remember that woman who went to Hawaii? She thought she'd send this uh, Mary Clement Levitt on around the world. So she, she wrote her and said, go on, go on. <laughs> and of course, it was no money. And this is for those of us who have worked in the WC2. We just sort of laugh and say, this is how it's been from the beginning. And this woman had about $20. And, and Frances wants her to go on to Australia. Uh, I don't know how she thought she was going to get there. So the people in Hawaii caught on what the problem was, and they took up an offering, and they sent her on. She was gone for oh, six to eight years, never saw a person that she knew in that whole time, and even though she went back and forth and crossed the equator many times and had a fantastic time of establishing unions, uh, she evidently never went back to the same place, so she never saw a face that she'd seen before. Can you imagine all of that travel before the invention of airplanes? That's how much she believed in this cause. The reason I brought all this up back to Frances Willard, uh, she decided while, while Levitt was out doing all this travel, they should have a petition. And so it's called the Polyglot Petition, and it has millions of signatures uh, that she carried with her all over the world, and then it was presented to Grover Cleveland, and it was presented to the Queen in England, uh, and it was asking them to stop uh, alcoholic beverages and opium. A petition from all around the world asking leaders to take the temperance movement seriously. The movement kept building, and not just in the public square, but also teaching temperance to children even in public schools. And then we had this Mary Hunt, who was getting the temperance into the schools. It was required to teach the effects of alcohol. So when this, when this, that generation grew up and started voting uh, and got it on the ballot, well, yes, they said, we know it's, it's not good for us. And so they've, they voted alcohol out. And Mary Hunt, the woman in charge of education, became a force to reckon with. She had a background in chemistry and didn't like inaccuracies printed in her textbooks. And so it became in, in many of the states that they would only accept textbooks that she and the WCT had approved. And she didn't uh, usually write them, but she had people who were writing them. And if she approved them, then they were sold. And if not, uh, it didn't get very far. They were eventually required to teach temperance in every state. And they signed this then that, that they had to have. This was a, a national requirement that they had to teach it. Uh, this was Grover Cleveland again, and she went in to see him because they were scared to death that, that he was not going to sign it. 
And she said, I didn't come to ask you if you were going to sign it. I know how, how you are supporting us. I just came to say, when you finish signing it, would you please send me the pen? <laughs> and about five days later, she got the pen and he'd signed it. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. The WCTU was a whirlwind of activity, and they weren't the only organization pushing for temperance or the right to vote. But as a case study, it should demonstrate how much they were able to do long before social media made it easier to assemble a protest or spread ideas. They could overcome fake news in the newspapers and get the job done. Francis did it through marches, petitions, and speeches, like this one. Hi, I'm Mary Demuth of the Pray Every Day Show. Address of Francis E. Willard, President of the Women's National Council of the United States, at its first triennial meeting, All Boz Opera House, Washington, D.C., February 22nd through the 25th, 1891. We, women of the United States, sincerely believing that the best good of our homes and nations will be advanced by our own greater unity of thought, sympathy, and purpose, and that an organized movement of women will best conserve the highest good of the family and the state, do hereby band ourselves together in a confederation of workers committed to the overthrow of all forms of ignorance and injustice and to the application of the golden rule to society, custom, and law. Not every woman in the WCTU had the same approach as Frances Willard. Some preferred a little less of a subtle approach. Enter one of my favorite historic figures, Miss Carrie Nation. Here is Claire White from the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. And Carrie Nation, on the other hand, uh, liked to uh, very literally take hammers and axes and rocks and smash anything that she believed was uh, in her way. She was from the same group as Frances Willard, but with some very different methods. Kansas was already a dry state. They already had statewide prohibition, but the law was rarely, if ever, enforced. And uh, Carrie Nation just found that so offensive and, and really wanted the WCTU to find ways to force the state to, uh, you know, actually enforce this law. She wrote letters and marched temperance advocates through the streets but it just wasn't working. She was the president of her local chapter at the WCTU. So how was she going to solve this problem if the police and judges weren't going to do their jobs? What good is a law if it's not enforced? Turns out this would be a plague on the temperance movement and eventually 
on prohibition. She preyed on it, and uh, on June 5th of 1900, she said that when she awoke, that uh, she heard the message, go to Kiowa, I'll stand by you. And she she believed that that in those words that that God was suggesting to her that she go to Kiowa, Kansas, where they were drinking illegally and uh, smash apart some saloons. She gathered what she called smashers, rocks and bottles that she'd wrapped to look like harmless packages so nobody would know what was about to come. So she went there and destroyed three saloons. Uh, she was arrested more than 30 times over the next 10 years as she continued to do these things. Uh, she self-described herself as a bulldog running along at the feet of Jesus, barking at what he doesn't like. When she was in jail the first time, she wrote, you put me in here a cub, but I will come out a roaring lion and I will make all hell howl. She became famous for using a hatchet to smash bars. Not just barrels and bottles of alcohol, like whole bars, mirrors, rungs of chairs. And she got away with it sometimes because she smashed things that weren't supposed to exist. She called these events hatchetations. Members of other WCTU branches did not want to join her. Carrie responded, I tell you ladies, you don't know how much joy you will have until you begin to smash, smash, smash. You know, sometimes it does take a little bit more of a militant stance to get things done. <laughs> the governor begged her not to continue her crusade, but she said that if he wouldn't enforce the law, then she had no choice but to do it herself. She funded her crusades against alcohol by selling pins made to look like her famous hatchet. She gathered a group of Kansans together to help. They called themselves the Home Defenders Army. The pictures of Carrie in this era are just great. She looks like a little old lady you might expect to be running a used bookstore. Little round glasses, frown lines, conservative clothing, holding a Bible, and her hatchet. Saloon owners hung up signs in their bars, all nations welcome, except Carrie. Eventually, as you know, through marches and the use of a renowned hatchet, prohibition and the women's right to vote became constitutional amendments. One of those ideas was a little more popular than the other. Prohibition didn't have the same staying power. A lot of people today think it was a bad idea. Some of that has to do with its effect on organized crime. Here is Claire from the Mob Museum again. So prohibition is the best thing that ever happened to organized crime. Um, temperance reformers really believed that by outlawing alcohol, that crime would essentially disappear. Uh, they incorrectly assumed that all of the bar fights and domestic violence and public drunkenness that was happening in saloons and bars and beer gardens, that that was really the, the, the downfall of society, that that was what was causing uh, violence and strife. But it continued in no small part because the law said it was illegal to make, sell, and ship alcohol, but not to drink it. Now, if you couldn't buy alcohol in town, who would you get it from? Criminals, people who are already willing to break the law. So the mob 
immediately within a few hours of the uh, enforcement of the 18th Amendment, we have uh, trucks and, and boats around the country that are being hijacked. Uh, and that alcohol is, is going directly into the hands of the mob. And the mob is selling it to a willing and thirsty public. Prohibition now is considered by many to have been a failure. But was it really given a fair chance? The law was hamstrung, only prohibiting the manufacture and sale of alcohol. It wasn't illegal to own or drink it. It also took a year from its passage until it became law. So people had a lot of time to stock up. And it wasn't well enforced, sometimes because politicians were in the pockets of the bootleggers. There's another side of this, though. Good things happened because of prohibition. Male deaths by cirrhosis of the liver dropped by two-thirds. And the Roaring Twenties, when a lot of prohibition took place, was a time of immense economic prosperity. Could it not have been, at least in part, that people had more money because they weren't spending it on alcohol? If you drink one bottle of wine a week, you're spending about $1,500 a year. Yet, 21% of Americans have absolutely no retirement savings. If you took the money that you would spend on wine and saved it for four years, you'd have more in retirement than a quarter of the country. According to the CDC, excessive alcohol use leads to 88,000 deaths each year in the US, or one in 10 deaths among people 20 to 64 years old. And not to stir up controversy, but compare that to the decidedly smaller number of gun deaths, which is at 38,000 per year. 88,000 versus 38. You're more likely to die via shot glass than by being shot. And the economic cost of excessive alcohol consumption in 2010 was estimated at $249 billion, or $2.05 per drink sold. With all that criticism, it's important to note that alcohol is used in the Bible. Jesus turned water into wine, after all. Of course, in the United States, we like our freedom. I'm not arguing that we have to get rid of alcohol. I'm just saying we need to check ourselves. Prohibition did have some positive impacts and never really got a fair chance. It was a flawed 14-year experiment. I was taught in school that the people who wanted prohibition were Looney Tunes. But these women were protecting themselves, their homes, marriages, and their communities. So much of life is about finding moderation when society pushes us to excess. Jesus drank wine, but we're not to get drunk. The important thing is that it was an avenue for women to be taken seriously. The fight against alcohol allowed women to test their strength, which, if nothing else, is a reason to think that temperance had some success. Without it, who knows how long it might have taken women to gain the right to vote. The movement gave voice to women who, before this time, were hardly allowed to participate in public life at all. It started with prayer and the singing of hymns. And a hatchet. You can't forget the hatchet. Tell us what you think about temperance, the suffrage movement, whatever you like. You can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. For further reading, check out Daniel Okrent's book, Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. 
Thanks to Sarah Ward from the WCTU, which you can find at WCTU.org. Thanks also to Clara White from the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. I'm told that the axe-wielding Carrie Nation makes two different appearances in the museum. Thanks also to Jim Burrell for his research into the history of alcohol in the U.S. Nick Starin is always willing to help me untie my mental knots. Jenna DeWitt wrote the tweet that inspired both these stories. Truce is a listener-supported podcast. You can go to our website and donate a few dollars to keep this thing going. I'm over $1,000 in the hole after two seasons and could use a little help breaking even. Find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and please tell your friends. Maybe check out my movies Bringing Out Bobby and Between the Walls on Amazon and PureFlix, and my novel Cradle Robber on your favorite ebook platform. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce.